Well, Westmount, let's just carry that expression of worship right into our study of the Word. Let's turn our hearts and and minds there now. Take your copy of God's Word, open it with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. If you are visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. And don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the rack in front of you. You will see one there. Please take it, follow along. Second book, 34th chapter. We indeed have been studying Exodus, and in this book we are presented with this, a simple truth and reality, God revealed, God proclaimed. Not in just the simplest of terms would sum up what we've been learning thus far. In chapter 3, if you recall, his name was revealed, I am. In chapter 6, his faithfulness was revealed. Remember his covenant action to deliver Israel. Covenant promise made centuries earlier and now fulfillment, a promise fulfillment as we saw in chapter 6 expressed. Chapter 7 to 14, his power was revealed, remember, by way of the plagues in Egypt, by way of the passage through the Red Sea. In chapter 15, he was revealed as Jehovah Rapha, Israel, the Lord, your healer. That's who Yahweh is. Chapter 16, Yahweh, the great provider, was revealed. The quail, remember, the manna from heaven, the providential feeding of his people, the great provider. In chapter 17, God was revealed as Jehovah Nisi. Remember, the Lord is my banner, the victorious banner, the military banner, if you will. He goes before, Yahweh goes before his people, giving victory to his people as banner. Chapter 19, God was manifested on Mount Sinai, remember, his awesome presence in smoke and fire. You recall that. Chapters 20 to 23, his holiness was revealed by way of what? The ten words, the ten commandments, then the case laws. The law that set God's people apart fully onto him made them separate from the nations, his holiness revealed. And then in chapters 25 to 31, his order was revealed. Remember, God is a God of order, not confusion. And we see that most clearly in the tabernacle instructions. We can't forget with that what we've studied recently, chapter 32. Of all those other things revealed this too, his wrath was revealed. His wrath was revealed. In the wake of great sin. In this book, Exodus, then Almighty God has been made known to Israel. Consider the ways there. Consider the ways. Made known to Israel, made known to his people. And this morning, as we arrive at chapter 34, refreshment is in order. In fact, we would say it this way renewal is in order. That's what we've been seeing in these chapters in the wake of the great sin. Israel received all that revelation, and we just went through it, of their God, and now only reminder is needed. And church, that is indeed the case in the wake of all sin and setback for God's people. That is the case. Every time, this is it. It's not some new revealing that you need in the wake of your sin. It's not just a novel insight that will get you back on your feet. 
No, in the wake of the stinging reality of our weakness, the painful reminder of our inability and the grossness of our sin. All that is needed is truth declared before us, and here it is, beloved. It is truth that we already know. Truth that we already know. And it is this we need God proclaimed. We need God proclaimed. Again and again. We know God, but we must hear Him again and again. God proclaimed. We know His Word, but it must be received again. We know His person. We know His perfections, but they must be proclaimed again. And so, church, as was necessary for Israel then, so it is too for us again now. Thus, let us consider this passage before us. Look down with me at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Almighty Father, Lord, as we consider those words with our eyes, we pray that you would allow our minds to understand them. And Father, we pray as our minds understand, Lord, that you would make these words received in our heart. And from that, Father, that you would take that reception, that contemplation, Lord, and translate them to our hands and feet so that we would live them. For your glory, we pray. Amen. This is a grand passage, is it not? In fact, you come to grips every time you read this passage with the grandeur of the written word of God. Just a grand passage. And we have seen passages like this. We're in the context of grandeur in these passages in 33 and 34. And so often, when you think about chapter 33 and 34... So often are they're magnified by the context in which you see them, in which they're placed. And here it is not only the immediate sin with the golden calf, 
They're not just nestled there around that great sin, but it is a context of sin at Sinai, in the wilderness, even back to Egypt. Church, consider after chapter upon chapter of what? Complaint, unbelief, grumbling, and idolatry. That's it, and more. Israel has no business, right? They have no business, nor do they deserve what is unfurled in these verses. They have no right to this. Yet this is what they receive. Yet, even more, they will indeed receive this from God. A holy God in the wake of a great sin. God is proclaimed to Israel here by way of Moses. See it. And Westmount, we will observe that this morning in our study in two ways, just two simple ways, one by way of his written word and two by way of his perfections proclaimed. Let's begin with the first that we encounter here in chapter 34, his written words. Last week, we saw God's presence preserved. Do you remember that? Again, in spite of transgression and by way of intercession, we saw God's presence preserved. Here, we see the same with the endurance of God's word. I want you to look again with me at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. You recall with me, the tablets were the two pieces of stone that God gave to Moses. That's recorded in chapter 24 with Yahweh's call to Moses to ascend Mount Sinai. If you like, you can flip back there as we're reminded, do this little surveys. We are just being reminded of these tablets. So chapter 24, verse 12, remember, remember this. This is Moses, the initial reception. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And look at this, that I may give you what? The tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So what do you see there? This is an important reality we need to grasp that sets the context of this passage in 34. God gives two things. He originally gave Moses two things. One, the words, and we're going to come back to the written words. But two, do you see tablets that came directly from God? You see that? Chapter 24. Those tablets themselves were originally given by God himself. Just before then, Moses descends Sinai, we have that fact affirmed. If we were to go to chapter 31, verse 18, again, clear word to affirm this. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, what did he give? The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Clear there again. Even more, though, as Moses descends. So remember, Moses is coming down the mountain. And here's the noise in the camp. At least Joshua calls light to it. And then the unique origin is cemented. Look at chapter 32, verses 15 and 16. Just so we're reminded of what this gift is in Moses' hands. Verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. And then look at this in verse 16. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Incredible. Heavenly stone. Do you see that? 
heavenly stone with heavenly words. Moses has them in his hands as he enters the camp. And I want you to just consider that scene anew. And we've studied it. I know it would feel at length. He's about to walk into the camp and the carnage that will be in that camp. And he has heavenly stones in his hands. Can you just picture the contrast? Of course, we remember, speaking of that, what he did with those heavenly stones. And again, I remind you of verse 19 of that chapter, when he takes it in with his own eyes. The Lord has tipped him, of course, to what's going on at the base of the mountain. But verse 19 records the, the graphic response. And as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. There it is, the heavenly stone destroyed. That was it. No new stone from above was given. And we must note this, beloved, we must. That was one of the consequences of Israel's sin. Do you see that? They forfeited heavenly stone. Heavenly stone, as we will see, was never to be given again. The painful consequence of sin. You would say, well, what about the stone in this passage? Well, if we were to look again at chapter 34, verse 1, we might miss this with a quick reading. This time, look at verse 1 of 34. Moses has to what? Cut the new stone himself. He must produce them. And beloved, we must pause in the wake of this study, in the wake of this context, to just consider what we're seeing. We always lose something when we sin. We always lose something when we sin. In fact, we lose something when we sin divinely given. We lose something divinely given. Yes, by grace there's restoration and we will be there, praise the Lord. But don't miss this, something is lost for good. When you sin, something's lost for good. Yes, that's permanence. Salvation is always intact. Again, praise God for that. Salvation is intact. But sanctification always takes a hit when you sin. Sin taints. Sin robs. It destroys permanently. Now, that's the negative aspect of this picture, but it's not the only truth here. And again, we would say, praise God. Look again. God says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. What mercy. What mercy. So the actual stone tablets from heaven are gone, like a scar. But the words are not. Do you see that? The words remain. Earthly tablets, yes, but same heavenly inscription. And Christian, if you're putting some dots together, it's true. Here we encounter a number of bibliology lessons for us. What do we mean by bibliology? We mean the study of God's word. This account teaches us, it instructs us about the doctrine of God's word. For one thing, we learn about the preservation of God's word. From the very beginning we see here, God's words endure. And it's a needed lesson in our rationalist, empirical age. God does not need stone tablets, papyrus, or pages preserved. He doesn't need and depend on those things. Even more, those perish. God's words are heavenly. 
And they do not perish, but they what? Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. They stand forever. They stand forever. Or verse 8, I should say. Listen, smash stones. Do not smash or destroy the words. Do we see that? Smashing the heavenly stones. Don't destroy the words. Turn to Jeremiah 36. I think often when we have tangible things that are destroyed in front of us, like human bodies that get sick with disease, we have a tendency to think we're losing everything. But that's not the way it works with our Lord. And again, we would say, praise God. As we turn here to Jeremiah 36, just to give you the context, we're going to zoom into Josiah. Do you remember good King Josiah? Well, his son was not so much a good king. Jehoiakim. In fact, he even needed a name change. He was Jehoaz. He, Jehoiakim here, he's Josiah's son. And we're just going to read portions of chapter 36. And Jehoiakim would be one that maybe would be duped into thinking that you just simply need to destroy the thing that can perish already, the temporal. Let's zoom in. Chapter 36, verse 1. Let's get the context. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is the prophet, right, at that time in his court from the Lord. Take a scroll, this is to Jeremiah, and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you. Now that'd be similar to Moses, right? I have words, right? This is going to the king and his people. Take it prophet and write them down and i've spoken to you against israel and judah and all the nations those of you attending wednesday nights know these are now the judgments some of the judgments right this is a judgment against god's people from the day i spoke to you from the days of josiah until today it may be that the house of judah will hear and here it is all the disaster you can imagine what these words would be that i intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that i may forgive their iniquity and their sin so what's the context jehoiakim evil king right the people right presumably falling after that evil king god says to jeremiah I have a word judgment's coming to these evil people they need to turn and repent go go and do that that's the context Scroll down to verse 9. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord. And here it is, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. In other words, someone in the king's court, in influence, has got word of what's going on here. The secretary hears. The secretary, if we were to read the whole chapter, goes off and tells the rest of the king's officials, you need to hear this. You need to hear what Jeremiah is saying. You need to hear what Yahweh is saying to us. This needs to be read. This is important stuff. They get worked up, and of course, eventually, they get into the king's court, which would have had the king and his servants. They went into the court, verse 20, to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. So it's now going to be read in the king's presence. These are the written words on the scroll. 
It was the ninth month. Just look at this scene. And the king was sitting in the winter house, very comfortable. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And just picture what he's about to hear are words of judgment. He's feeling very comfortable. Words of judgment don't feel very comfortable when you're feeling comfortable, do they? As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. In other words, I don't like what I'm hearing. Snip it off, burn it, make it all go away. Right? And we trick ourselves into thinking, I don't like those words, let me toss it away. I don't like those words, let me burn them. This is the king's behavior. This is what wicked people do. Verse 24, yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid. So now you've got his inner servants, this little kingly posse, if you will, around Jehoiakim. They don't care. They're not afraid. They're just going to burn the scroll. They didn't even tear, look at the end of verse 24, their garments. Now where is this headed? Again, we won't be reading the rest of the full chapter, but this particularly we need to note. Verse 27, all might seem to the tangible, rational, objective looker that, wow, it's gone. Those are some good words of judgment, but they're gone. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take what? Another scroll. And write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Such truth here in a picture. Jehoiakim can burn the scroll, but he can't burn what? He can't burn the words. He can't burn the words. They remain in wickedness, in evil. There's a sense where I just need to put away the tangible thing and all will go away, but that's not the way it works with God. The words remain. He can, Jehoiakim, you can burn it again and again and again, and while the pages burn, the words remain untouched. And that truth of God's word remains still today. We have no original autographs and tablets, no original pages or scrolls, yet God's word is preserved through thousands of pages, through thousands of scrolls. That is the sovereignty of God. The inspired, and by that we mean the God-sourced, God-origin words are indestructible. They're imperishable. Hence, they do not depend on perishable earthly modes and apparatus. They don't depend on them because they're heavenly words. Heavenly words have no dependence on earthly apparatus. Listen, for century upon century, the inspired word of God has been transmitted and preserved through various tablets, various papyrus, various manuscripts, and so on. Yet as those mediums perish and fade, the heavenly words do not. And that's because, as we see in this account here, the written words are from God. Which brings us to another important doctrine tied closely to this, and that would be the doctrine of inspiration. Where these words come from. You see this with Moses, right? He's getting these words from who? Yahweh. He doesn't go up on the mountain in a closet and, you know, and, and think this is really good for Israel. No. This is from Yahweh. He, his inspir- it's from Yahweh's mouth. They're God-sourced. 
in Exodus, we see God telling Moses, in fact, we can turn back to Exodus if you haven't already. In Exodus, we see God telling Moses to write down his words. Do you remember chapter 17, verse 14? We saw it again in chapter 24, verse 4. What about Ezra? Ezra called this law the words of the God of Israel. Ezra 9, verse 4. And let's just use one psalm as an example. Indeed, yes, the biggest one, Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, Scripture is called the word of the Lord 24 times, origin and source. Most pointedly, New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told what? All Scripture is breathed out by God. The word behind breathed out by God is actually just one word behind that phrase. It's one word. It's a compound word, God and breathed. And what Paul does is he basically creates this word. It's one time in the New Testament, God breathed, a compound word, because of this unique thing that the word of God is. God breathed. Fascinating. In one word, we have the truth proclaimed that God wrote, God inspired, God gave the biblical text. And he did so through the pens of various men. This would be, as theologians call it, verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? It means every single word, verbal. Every part of the Bible, plenary. All of it inspired and God-breathed. What a rich truth. Every single word. Beloved, look down at your Bible. Every single word has come from God. Is that book precious? Heavenly words in your lap. Here in Exodus, need a new vehicle. The old tablets are smashed, but here God immediately lays out clear instructions for a reissue because they're heavenly words. Look at verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. We see here, as you look at those verses, much of what we've observed with the original issue in chapter 19. One, Moses, or Israel we would say, you must ready yourself, you must prepare to receive these words again. Secondly, No one is to be on the mountain. Did you catch that? No one's to be on the mountain. Not even animals are to touch the mountain. And thirdly, Moses obeys. Look at it. And he heads up the mountain again. So we've seen so much of this before. Again, it's the same, same issue in terms of its character. Just as the original written words given. And just as those written words will be exactly the same as before. As we felt the force with Jehoiakim, right? In Jeremiah's words, just because they're being given again doesn't mean they're going to change. Often we want them to, don't we? Moses climbs Sinai, new tablets in hand, but to receive ancient words. He has cut the tablets, but the words he receives will be the same. They're ancient, eternal words. That's one way God is proclaimed here, with written words that never perish. Let's now consider the proclamation of God in the very name and nature of God. That's second, his perfections. His perfections. Moses is atop Sinai, 
And there again, he meets Yahweh. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord will proclaim his name to Moses by way of, look, passing before him. We see that if you were to go on to verse 6. At the very beginning, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And as you see that language, you're likely recalling that from last week. You say, yes, that was at the end of chapter 33, specifically verses 21 to 23. We've seen this before, and you're right. There, remember, God's glory passes by Moses. He's in a cleft of a rock, remember? God said that's where he needs to be. Here, God again passes by, but this time to proclaim his name. Unlike chapter 3, this is not a name proclamation in title or expression like I am. As rich and deep and incomprehensible as the name is, it's not like that. This name proclamation, and here it is, is about knowing God. This is about knowing God, knowing his name. Who is the I am? Who is Yahweh? Once again, in Exodus, before Moses and Israel, God is revealed. Now look again at verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is the proclamation, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You look at that expression there, given the expression of the name of God, just so pregnant with meaning here. This proclamation of God is likely familiar to you. You look at it, you recognize what is grand of God, but you also recognize you've seen it before. In fact, to the ancient Israelite, what you see in verse 6 and 7 was, became, and it would come to be like a creed to ancient Israel. And that's why, as you think, I see that over and over in the Old Testament. That's why. For example, this proclamation of God is virtually repeated word for word in chapter like Numbers 14, verse 18. It's referenced later in Israel when the returned exiles confess their sin. Nehemiah 9, 17, it's mentioned there. It's repeated in the Psalms, and we've heard that this morning already. Remember, as we read Psalm 86 to begin our time together, it almost tracks exactly with what is proclaimed here. And along with Psalm 86, two times in Psalm 103, it's again in Psalm 145, you see this over and over. This is the proclamation of God, the name of God that Israel would know. And here in these two verses, we're presented with four attributes or more pointedly, we would say four perfections, right? In God, they are perfect. They're not just characteristics, they're perfections. And you'll see these four perfections along with a series of implications, which we'll get to, flowing from his perfections. So let's examine them one by one. Number one, first, the Lord, the Lord is a merciful God. Look at it. Mercy is compassion. It is goodness to those in a pitiful condition. Mercy is goodness to those in a pitiful condition. 
Of course, pitiful is what Israel was in Egypt, were they not? In bondage. Then in the wilderness, even into the promised land, it seems like that pitiful condition continued. Sovereign God preserving them, they couldn't let go of that pitiful condition. And in spite of that pitiful, self-inflicted condition, their God showed them mercy. But as we've seen already in Exodus, this is not some stripe of mercy. Let's grab this. This is not just merciful deeds by a kind God at times. Oh yes, that deity we've heard about of the Hebrews and Israelites, every once in a while he shows kindness on his people. No, this mercy is more. This mercy is God's. And the Lord is perfect mercy. That means that his mercy is manifold. Psalm 51.1, David appeals to God's abundant mercy. That's David's hope in the wake of his great sin. Remember with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, the psalm of repentance, he appeals to God's abundant mercy. And he can because lesser mercy is limited. Lesser mercy maybe would have stopped at the adultery, let alone the lie with Uriah, then the murder. No, abundant mercy forgives and forgives. And perfect mercy does not fail. Lamentations 3.22, it tells us what? We know this. His mercies never come to an end. They never come to an end. Lesser mercy, is this not true? Lesser mercy has a shelf life. Okay, you know what? I'm like I, I'm doing this? No. Perfect mercy never ends. C- can we not derive hope from perfect mercy? It never ends. And God's mercy, here it is, God's mercy is embodied. Mercy came down and took the form of us. Can you grasp that? Perfect mercy was revealed in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. From his arrival, this was understood by true Israelites, like Mary. You know her Magnificat in Luke 1. Just listen to bits of this. She understands that mercy has come down and took on flesh. She understands it's mercy in her womb. Verse 50, Luke 1, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You talk about unending mercy, right? He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And look at this. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and done what? Exalted those of humble estate. Those that were pitied. Those in a pitiful condition. Mary recognizes her God and says, in mercy he exalts them from pity. And then this, 54. He has helped his servant Israel. How has he helped? In remembrance of his mercy. Mercy promised, Mary knows this, mercy delivered by way of the Son in her womb, Jesus Christ. To condescend and look upon his people, Israel, church, us, in a very pitiful condition. And while we are in that miserable state for perfect mercy to show us goodness, goodness that was a way out of misery. There's no other way out of misery other than perfect misery. A lesser misery just enables us to get to our next pitiful condition. Perfect mercy elevates us above it completely into eternity. Goodness from God, that's our hope. 
in our pity. And without mercy, listen, we would be, still be lying by the side of the road. Do you remember like the Good Samaritan? No one would care. We'd be in a pitiful condition. And Jesus taught that parable to teach them what true mercy was. Now go and do and show mercy like that. Nobody would stop by for that man in that pitiful condition. Save the Good Samaritan. That's your picture of mercy. Christian, that is our God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. With that too, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious. A God gracious. Grace is favor. That's what the word means. Grace is favor. Now in one sense, it's just favor. It's not positive or negative. It's just favor. But in the context of God and his people, this is where we say grace is unmerited favor. See that? In the context of God and his people, it's unmerited favor. God regularly shows favor to his people, a group so very undeserving. Yes, the Bible is a rich depository of demonstrations of God's grace to his own. The Bible, page after page, shows us how God shows favor, undeserving, unmerited favor on his people. Adam and Eve, Israel, the Apostle Peter, Right through to the early church, you and me. The grace of God is not a grace sourced in mankind. Listen, we cannot do favor like that. No, God's grace, like his mercy, is perfect. This is perfect grace. And hallelujah for that. As such, like God's perfect mercy, God's perfect grace is, of course, embodied in his Son. Yes, God's grace is manifest perfectly, fully, and completely in Jesus Christ. We remarked on this fact toward the end of our time last week. Remember John 1. John 1. You know this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Then verse 16 For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Astounding truth of the incarnation. Grace, perfect grace came down, full of grace and truth, and dispensed his person to us. Dispensed the perfections of grace to us. Incredible truth. And even more, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the source of grace. If you want to consider good favor in this day, in this perverse day we live in, that verse just told us favor can only come from one source, and it's Jesus Christ. There's only one source of good merit, good favor, Jesus Christ. This is glory revealed in Christ. But note also, this is grace revealed Offered, given fully. 1 Peter 1.13 says the same. Tying grace to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The good news is that any pitiful soul could have hope in their miserable condition because of grace revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That any could have hope in misery. Grace embodied in Christ is the unmerited favor to have access to God. We do not deserve it like Israel, but we have it. That's grace. Church, that grace we have in Christ, that favor Israel had too. Let's not miss that. 
Grace is not just a New Testament thing. We see here it's very much an Old Testament thing because the Old Testament God is the New Testament God, is the one true God, the one triune God. The unmerited favor of access to God's presence through Moses after sin, is that not favor? Incredible with what Israel does, that they have access still to God's presence. What manner of grace is this that we're reading in Exodus? What is this? And a grace still available to sinners today, to those with eyes opened, to know that grace is not just a nice thing to have, but that grace is a must-have. It's a must-have. That the grace of Christ, His favor, is the only hope for any favor after the grave. We have no other hope. Maybe this morning your eyes are open for the first time. And your heart is quickened right now to this reality. Maybe this week you once thought that you would be okay after death. You're reasoning through pandemic and virus and you think, you know what? I weigh my odds and I'm going to be okay. I think I have earned enough favor in this life. I'm going to be okay. Say it long enough, say it loud enough, and you convince yourself, right? But maybe now the Spirit has revealed to you that this is serious. You will not be okay when you die. Maybe you now for the first time realize that you need the grace of Christ. You need His favor. And maybe the Spirit is moving you not just to see it, but to beg for it. And if that's you, cry out to Him. Beg Him for perfect mercy. Receive His perfect grace. Repent and believe. And be taken from your pitiful condition. Be delivered from the hopelessness of self and be saved unto eternal life by the Lord who is perfectly merciful, by the Lord who is perfectly gracious, and by, thirdly, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger. Slow to anger is the perfection of God that describes his long-suffering. This is not just patience, but God's perfect patience, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16. Of course, perfect patience is the only kind of patience that preserved Israel. Could there be any other kind as you read the Old Testament? Perfect patience after the golden calf episode. And such long suffering by God demonstrates that God is patient with those, here it is, deserving divine punishment. That's what makes it long suffering. To those that deserve divine punishment, he is long suffering. Joel 2.13 To a very guilty Israel. Here's the creed again. The Israelite Old Testament creed. Yahweh says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Same proclamation. Then Joel 2 says this, And he relents over disaster. In other words, slow to anger is a relenting of disaster. It should be coming, but a a slow to anger God relents. A bearing with. And listen, you see this, you know this in Exodus. Israel is the exhibit A of this relent in the Old Testament. The nations, in a sense, yes, but who received these revelations from God? Israel. Israel. None like Israel. A nation that should know better and they should know their God better. Yet God is slow to anger with them. And they're an example to us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. In the New Testament, saints of this age are the same, saved in perfect timing, like Paul reminds us, remember, 1 Timothy 1. 
And all brought along by the perfect patience of God. And Christian, let us be clear this morning. We all require this level of patience. We all need it. We are all in eternal trouble without the perfect patience of our Lord. Not only would all other patients fail in the wake of our total depravity, but no other patience has the ability, listen, no other patience has the ability to endure sin after sin after sin in the wake of given grace and mercy. What kind of patience is needed for that? Christian, that is your Lord, perfectly slow to anger. One more perfection. Fourth, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, look at the expression and the word that that is indeed has said, for those of you that have been with us Wednesday nights, that is loyal covenant love. Loyal covenant love. One of the great, great Hebrew words in the Old Testament. Describing the kind of love, the only kind of love that God can muster and have. Once more, that is perfect covenant love. Hosea 1 reveals the strength of our love against true Hesed. That is love, of course, intimately tied with faithfulness. You see that? Love intimately tied with faithfulness. And you see it in the verse here too. God's Hesed and faithfulness are like God's power and sovereignty. You cannot have one without the other. A faithful God is a Hesed God. A powerful God is a sovereign God. It's the same thing. You can't have one without the other. God's love and faithfulness are joined. And this makes sense. A covenant-keeping God must be faithful, and He is. For example, turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4. Good to get comfortable with all these expression of God's perfection in the law. Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. It says this, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or what? Forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The hope for Israel here in the second telling of the law is that he won't forget what he originally promised. Even more, if we were to go over to chapter 7, turn over there, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps what? covenant and has said with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations this all must sound familiar the psalmist by the way elsewhere appeals to this perfection of god for help and deliverance in psalm 40 when he says verse 11 as for you o lord you will not restrain your mercy from me your steadfast love your has said and your faithfulness will ever preserve me Daniel petitions God in light of this attribute of Yahweh, his prayer in Daniel 9, verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Only such a God of said and faithfulness can be rightly called this, a rock, Deuteronomy 32, 4, or a refuge, Psalm 18, 2-3. Unless the rock and the refuge are perfectly steadfast, perfectly faithful, there's no security, Right? And while we're considering petition and plea, listen, that is why Christ, our great Savior, our great intercessor, our great high priest, must be perfect in Hesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness as well. And the good news is he is. As such, he can be trusted as both Savior and Lord because 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds if we're faithless, he remains faithful. What an encouragement. Uh, of most encouragement, 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds all the promises of God find their yes in who? 
Christ in him. That's why, as Paul goes on to say, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Apart from Christ, there is no yes. Apart from Christ, and there is no hope. That is steadfast love and faithfulness of God embodied in the Son of God. The eternal plan of the Father to be glorified through the Son. A plan not conditional on the vessels of glory, sinful as they were, and sinful as they are, but a plan rooted in the loyal covenant love of God and His perfect faithfulness. That is indeed a plan your eternity can be tied to. Those are just some of God's perfections revealed to Moses and Israel here, but in the few minutes we have left, we need to consider the implications. Verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So much here, so we need to move a little quickly to end. But first, we need to see this. God keeps that has said, look at it, for thousands. Or some may have to the thousandth generation. In other words, all of God's people will experience has said. It has no limit. It doesn't hit, you know, the top of the jar. Oh, I'm sorry, there's no more has said for you. All God's people receive it. That's the logical implication of a God of perfect loyal love and faithfulness. If a promise is made to a people, then if you're in the people, there is none of his who won't see it kept. But we need to stress this. We must mention this promise here is not for all people, is it? It's for his people. That's the promise. It always has been. The promise of covenant, covenant love is for God's people. God has no covenant, let alone covenant love, for any that turn from him. Second, God's love forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you see those three together? All of those refer to the same. Thus, the expression communicates sweeping inclusion. It means there's absolutely no iniquity, no transgression, no sin, no evil that will not be pardoned by God's love. There's no lingering sin undealt with. There's nothing in the closet. Nothing like that for God's people. For those in covenant love with him, no evil is beyond pardon. And we say this every time, don't we? This is hardly the Old Testament God that people like to peddle, is it? that you would see such a God in the Old Testament. Yet it is. It's God proclaimed. And if today you've never heard of this God, now you know. And you will walk away today knowing that this God has covenant love for those that turn from their sin and embrace him. God forgives. God's forgiveness is extended to the repentant, the contrite, the truly broken. And what else do we always say? Yes, none of us know what you've done. But God knows intimately, even more than you, what you've done. And he still extends forgiveness to you. Forgiveness is offered. Thirdly, is what said and forgiveness mean alongside God's other perfections. Like justice. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. God is perfectly just. So does his said to his people mean there's no consequences? Oh, we would love that, wouldn't we? God, God is love. There's no consequences. You just overlook what I've done. And he will. He's a God of love. And I trust Westmount. If you've been at Westmount for a while, you almost say to yourself, yeah, absolutely not. I run from such heresy. 
Church, sin's penalty may be paid and forgiven again. Can we say hallelujah to that? But there are always earthly, temporal consequences. As such, God here proclaims it. Look at the verse, because that's where it is. End of verse 7. You will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, as you said earlier, things never just go back to normal. I need new heavenly tablets. Look, forgiveness is extended. Forgiveness is not a reset button. Forgiveness is not carrying on as if nothing happened. No, that's the carnal desire of the one filled with worldly sorrow. When Judas threw the 30 silver pieces, you can imagine, I just want to hit reset. I want to do over on that. It doesn't work that way. You may cry, Judas, but you don't cry like that. You cry like Peter. Godly grief. Things are never the same after sin, and especially great sin. Just ask David. Ask King David. He lost what? An infant son. And he had another son rise up what? To kill him. Consequences of his sin. And remember what God said to him, 2 Samuel 12, 13. The Lord has put away your sin. Again, praise God. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. In other words, Yahweh says, you have sinned. You'll be with me in eternity, but you will face the consequences on this earth before you come back to me. As such for Israel here, they too utterly scorned the Lord with the golden calf. As such for Israel here too, the generations after them would feel the effect. Often, by the way, in the ancient Near East, you'd have multiple generations, three, even four, living in the same tent. Kind of brings force to this, doesn't it? One person's sin in a tent of four generations, do you think they all feel it? Oh, absolutely. Thus, sin's effects were experienced and visited to the third and often fourth generation. Now, we've covered this before. It's very different to say those generations are guilty for what their grandparents or great-grandparents did. I know we're out of time, and I know I've said this before, but listen, we are swimming in this right now, aren't we? I saw what the Pope did this week. So we need to be reminded of this, and we need to hear this. In light of what he did, in light of what everyone's doing, and every flag that's being flown, Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You need not, should not confess for what your grandfather did. Right? Can we be clear on that? You don't need to do that. Because the word of God says, not what any magistrate says, the word of God says the soul who sins shall die. Personal accountability. Now, if you've sinned, You deal with that. You deal with that. The soul who sins shall die. And our response, verse 8 and 9, as we close this passage, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Two takeaways. Verse 8, what is the first? Moses did what? He bowed his head and worshipped. Beloved, if we have come to a point this morning, and that is not your heart expression, in the wake of great grace and great mercy, I beg you to consider this text and consider it again and again. And God proclaimed, Are you stirred to worship in light of his written word and perfection? Are you? Secondly, 
verse 9, Moses' bold request. It doesn't end, does it? Look at this one. Even as he acknowledges Israel's persistent stiff neck, he offers what? That Yahweh, you would take Israel for your inheritance. That is Yahweh, take us as your own. This is incredible. Take us as your son, your people in possession. How can we not be amazed by this final request here in light of what's transpired? Yet this is in line, this is where the intercessor knows his relationship is where the request is rooted. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. There's something about birth that we get in a very earthly sense. It can never be taken away, can it? In a greater sense, God and Israel, it can never be taken away. There's nothing that that child can do can take away the fact that he's your son, right? Nothing. Nothing. Secondly, know that there's no limit to the inheritance because of the heir. Listen, Westman, what is true of Abraham's offspring, the seed, the Christ, is true of all of us in him. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And here's the implication. Heirs according to promise. God's proclamation, there it is, in Christ. That's the promise. You're an heir in God because of Jesus Christ. We must stop there and just pick it up next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, how can this be? How can this be in the wake of our great sin and our many sins that you would send the Christ, the perfect embodiment of grace and mercy, patience, love and faithfulness for us to extend anything to us? But Lord, we see it, and by your sovereign grace we receive it. And Lord, help us now to go in light of this truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.